Secure your digital world in physical form with IM8Bit. For over 15 years, IM8Bit has been crafting premium expansions of the industry's best games, from pioneering community experiences for Epic's Fortnite World Cup to bringing over 100 award-winning soundtracks from breakout hits like Untitled Goose Game and Disco Elysium to vinyl, and bringing the Ori sequel to Switch. Their passion for artistry and gaming fuels them, whether they're interpreting beloved brands from a new point of view or extending the mythology of another game, perhaps one you're developing. What's the IM8Bit difference? Their collectibles are premium, but for IM8Bit, they're personal too. See for yourself at im8bit.com. Welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook, a podcast featuring a series of in-depth one-on-one conversations between game makers providing a thoughtful, intimate perspective on the business and craft of interactive entertainment. The Game Maker's Notebook is presented by the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, a member-driven organization dedicated to the recognition and advancement of interactive entertainment. everyone and welcome to the Game Maker's Notebook. I'm your host Robin Hunnicky and I'm here today with Philip Tibetowski from Young Horses. And I wanted to take some time to talk with them a little bit about their new game, which they just released uh, for the PlayStation 5. And <laughs> and also talk a little bit about uh, how Young Horses came to be, how they broke into the industry, and what merry adventures they had along the way. So welcome to the show, Phil. Thanks, Robin. You're glad to be here. I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm okay. Uh, all being, you know, all being said, and uh, the existence of the world, I'm doing pretty well. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I'm hope I'm hoping that you're doing well also. I'm living. You know, I'm yeah. I'm, I'm reading the news every morning, like what's happening now, and I'm um, I'm checking my I'm checking my DMs, like who needs me now? <laughs> right, right. Trying to, trying to be there for everybody else and spread a little joy and holiday cheer, despite all of the the craziness that 2020 has thrown at us. I can't even imagine what it's like to be doing this sort of a press tour uh, and talking about new release during this time. Um, what a what a weird thing to be doing, making and selling video games in the middle of a global pandemic and a potentially undecided election. <laughs> yeah, well, I feel like we've actually kind of gone back in time a little bit because when we were working on Octodad for the longest time, we were working out of our apartments uh, remotely from one another for the most part. Um, so it's been weird to go from that to being in an office and then back to this. Uh, but, you know, we're managing. So, I mean, when you when you think about the, the place where you are with Young Horses today versus where you were when you started, what would you say is the, the biggest difference then? If it isn't that you're in a glamorous office surrounded by fantastic objects, what is the what would you say is the big <laughs> is the big difference between, say, say this and when you and when you release Dr. Dad? Hmm. I mean, I think the thing that sets the two times apart the most, besides the fact that we're all working full time now and are our own uh, bosses rather than this being like a after you know our full time jobs gig uh, side gig uh, is that we're very aware of all of the potential <laughs> possibilities now uh, in making a game and the potential downfalls maybe more so than we used to be. I think when it's your first time making something, uh, there's a certain naivete that like is nice to have 
uh, or it, it like makes you feel or like looking back on it, it feels a little bit more brave, uh, even if it was just out of like not knowing um, to have been able to do the things we did uh, and kind of, I don't know, move forward without any real reservations only because we didn't know <laughs> what to look out for, you know? Um, yeah. Whereas now uh, approaching releasing bug snacks or having released bug snacks now, uh, it was, it felt twice as scary in a lot of ways um, because we knew what could go wrong, um, both based on things that had gone wrong in the past and based on just, you know, stories we've heard from other pe- developers and other people in, in games. Well, and it's, you know, the the goal of, of creating a game is always to make something really fun, right? And in general, you have a tendency to work in spaces that are very underexplored or completely unexplored, right? You're, you're a blue ocean developer in the <laughs> sense that you, you have made titles that are very, very different from what is typically made, which is in and of itself, you know, it, it compounds the risk. I guess the question would be, why are you so crazy? Why do you, <laughs> why you keep doing it? <laughs> I mean, I think that's what makes it fun to do is that it's a little bit, it's, I don't know, it's a little bit dangerous in an abstract way, at least, uh, in that we're always exploring something either we haven't professionally or personally done before, or something that we don't think has seen a lot of, I don't know, playtime or just visibility in games uh, in general whether it be the genre or the the storytelling or uh, just the perspective. Um, and I think like ever since Young Horses was founded, it was founded with the goal of, hey, if this Octodad thing does well, we will continue to make things that if they were pitched at any other studio internally, even just amongst team members, uh, they would probably be, I don't know, maybe not laughed at, but just passed on. Uh, because we often will tackle things from a thematic or story perspective first and then figure out how the mechanics of it will work later. Um, And I think that leads us down some interesting roads because it's often that we're uh, adapting and, I don't know, pushing mechanics together in ways that make physical sense to us, but when you look at them within a game space, it seems like a bad idea uh, everything <laughs> everything is very physical with young horses which i think you know comes from the slapstick nature of octodad and, and what we did with that um because even in bug snacks when you're putting down traps and capturing bug snacks themselves you're using these like physics contraptions uh and bait and they're in these little uh environments that are systematic in, in how they behave with one another uh and all that kind of stuff so and, and, and it's first person, and we had never done any of those things before. <laughs> yeah, that's was, a lot. <laughs> Octodad was much more of a um, sandbox kind of toy of a game. Like there was a narrative to it, and there were objectives and stuff. But a lot of the joy I think people took from it was watching Octodad's body flop around in that environment and just trying to physically exist uh, in that state. And uh, this is much more of a undertaking with Bug Snacks. So. 
So you were able to sort of see it from a systems perspective and see that you were adding multiple systems to the game, you know, and mm-hmm. as opposed to just leaning on the physics of the one character and then all the physics that, you know, that character can create in the space. And so a series of chain reactions with with brooms or boxes or other people and stuff like this. Now you're talking about a series of environments and some kind of physically interpretable world where the bug snacks can be sort of observed and then captured and um and then of course yes the ability to move through that space in first person and like when you set out did you have a sense like okay this game is going to take 10,000 years and we'll never finish it <laughs> did you you know were you able to sort of sort of did you make a big fake schedule and and then and then realize halfway through it was it was totally bullshit like wh- what was the what was the process like for you on this cuz like yeah you you have on your 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 big developer pants now, right? And so you can't just be can't just be yeah. We'll just do it, you know. Uh, yeah, I'll just do it this weekend when I'm not working, right? It has to become right. a much more focused process. So, what was that like for you guys? Uh, it was interesting to we approached the same process that we did with Octodad, um, that are at the time our like professor mentors, uh, Patrick Curry and Scott Roberts had set up for us where. We all pitched our own internal ideas, no matter what discipline or like department, not that there's really departments in a nine person studio, but um, that each person was in. Uh, and then we, and those were basically like one page pitches with just, this is what I want people to feel like when they play this. This is what it might sound like and look like and, and, and things like that. And this is kind of the narrative gist. Um, and we took all of those and there's, there's nine of us. So it was probably like, I don't know, 63, 70 pitches, something like that. Um, and everyone kind of voted on them to see which ones they liked the most. Uh, and we took those, uh, and eventually whittled it down to about three games that we actually went out of our way to prototype. Uh, and through prototyping those three things and letting like some people, um, the Indie City Co-op uh, that's run by uh, Ryan Weimer, men who wear many hats, yeah. um, made Oregon Trail. They have a co-op and we had a bunch of developers there come by and play our prototypes and tell us like which of these seem the most engaging, which of these seem the most interesting. Um, maybe not only just from what has been you know presented in the prototype, but also uh, what it could be, the potential of it. Um, we took all that into account. We also took into account how marketable each idea was, like what was the audience or perceived audience for it. And uh, does it actually fit what we want to be doing as a team? Does it allow each person to maybe explore something new or get better at something that they're already good at uh, while they're doing it? Because I feel like early on, it's difficult to get, total 100% buy-in from every person on the team when the idea is so fresh and you don't really know if it's going to pan out. Um, and so we wanted to give people on the team other things to kind of grab hold of um, until they get to that 100%, um, hopefully. Uh, and I think it, I think it worked out. Um, but <laughs> yes, the, the realization that it was a wild amount of systems and mechanics for a team of our size to tackle um, was was very obvious to us at the beginning. Um, and 
bug snacks itself, once we actually got down to that core idea, ended up being like three games maybe worth of mechanics yeah. uh, at, at the start. Uh, I can't, we might've shown you some of them early on, but there was one um, that was based quite a bit on Pokemon Snap, the idea of being in a, like a moving cart or vehicle. For us, it was a food truck and <laughs> there being bug snacks out in this environment while you're on this track uh, in first person and maybe you're throwing traps out of that or bait out of that to capture them. Um, and that was fun and interesting, but if you go back and play Pokemon Snap now, it feels very still and I don't know. It's it's enjoyable if you have uh, the memories of playing it before when you maybe were younger or something, but for now it's not a very exciting game. <laughs> um, didn't think it was that engaging anymore. Uh, and so we didn't go that route. The idea was that you would do that, you'd capture them, and then you'd bring them back to your food truck and prepare them in sort of a cooking mama style, except at, at one point we were thinking about it as more of a scary, or not, I don't know about scary, but like uneasy thing. Like you're preparing these living beings to be fed to uh, <laughs> the, the members of this camp uh, at the Snacksburg place. Um, and to do that, you would like take them apart to their down to like their most essential ingredients um, whether that was like pulling a popsicle stick out of a, a living popsicle or um, peeling a banana or something like that. We were looking at peeling mechanics at one point and, and then you would take them to this town of people that even for the, from the beginning were these Muppet like creatures called grumpuses uh, and you fed them the different bug snacks. And at least initially the idea was that it would affect their mood somehow um, and run a sort of, town sim uh, <laughs> which is like already my interior right. producers just like having a major freak out like exactly oh no, you can't have like three three different games and then the last one is oh by the way it's a town sim like it's just by, by the way we're making the sims yeah yeah <laughs> um so obviously yeah that that became way too much and and we did prototype all three of those things uh but it was just obvious that we were not going to be able to pull them all off and we had to like hone it down and figure out what the game was. And You know, it's somehow- interesting Into the Breach had a similar sort of backstory and that they were kind of planning that you would be defending a city in waves and then the city would have all these stats and it would be like SimCity and then they just axed all that and stuck with the defense stuff. Well, I mean, yeah, that makes sense with them. I think, I mean, I think for us, we were also moving in a direction in which I feel like we weren't initially playing to our strengths, which I think are in world building characters. Um, yeah. Storytelling. Like and storytelling in general. Right. <laughs> which, which made sense. I don't know with Octodad and that it was a, a pretty simple game when it came to how it plays. But for this, yeah, it's, there's just no way we were going to be able to tackle three games worth of mechanics while also pulling off the stuff that, that we enjoy and that we, we wanted to get better at. Did you have any interest in growing as a team? Like, did you ever think like, well, we could just add seven developers and build this <laughs> aspect of this team? Like, you know, did, did that ever come up or was it always like, is the scale of the team and being so, so, you know, your size part of a, a core value at the studio? We definitely thought about it and 
you know, Octodad, we were privileged enough for it to do as well as it did. And we could have potentially expanded our team a decent amount. Like you're saying, you know, maybe add like seven, 10 people or something. But we also knew that now that we had this kind of financial freedom, to some extent, we didn't want to go completely all in, in that aspect of it and, and, and instead maybe take our time um, and do something over, uh, you know, five, six years, if, if necessary, if it felt right for the game. Um, and I think we kind of do like our small studio setup, um, just knowing, I mean, getting to 20 people, it's not like you wouldn't know everyone, but you do, I imagine, get to the point where it's like, you don't know what everyone is up to exactly at any one moment, which makes it harder and more of a job to communicate. I mean, it's even difficult now, but like, I'm afraid of the point at which uh, we need other people to kind of be in the middle to make sure that everybody knows what's going on and um, to where you can't just like yell across a room yeah. and have everybody know what's going, what's happening. What um, was it, what was it like going from, um, from being developing the game sort of in the regular way, which is that you're all in the same space and you can shout across the room and hear each other into, into lockdown and like working from home and being more distributed. Like you said, it felt a little bit like going back in time, but like, were there some things that, that stayed true for you across the two development environments? I mean, you had been finaling, right? Like you were, you were wrapping up the game ready for getting it ready for launch when the, when everything hit, right? Yeah, for the most part. I mean, there was still quite a bit of game to make, but... Uh, what? You mean you weren't almost done? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it definitely... I, I feel like by the time quarantine hit in March, is when we stopped going into the office, uh, we had reached a point where we knew exactly what the game was and needed to be, at least. And, and so it was a matter of just doing the thing. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I feel like something that I want to become better at is, uh, reminding people of, I don't know, it sounds simple, but like just the act of reminding people of what is going on, um, what needs to be done, what the context of everything is so that they understand like the importance of one thing versus another, uh, that's really difficult and, and something that I have a hard time with and want to get better at. And I, <laughs> This is, uh, I don't know, I guess it's like slightly embarrassing, but to this point, we did not have a producer uh, at all, like no dedicated person to that role mm. of, of organizing all the people and making sure everybody has what they need and understands what's going on. And um, we later, you know, we hired Pop Agenda, um, which is like a, a small firm of three people uh, that helped us both like market the game, uh, get in contact with press in general, handle all the code distribution, but also we have MC Bordeaux who helped us with uh, the production side of things towards the end of development. And she was like an incredible asset uh, because to that up to that point, I was doing a lot of those things alongside all of my other responsibilities. And it felt like I was, you know, not doing well at any of them because I was like doing like adequate yeah. <laughs> uh, you know at, at, at what needed to be done rather rather than like great at you know a few things um i was stretched a little too thin 
So the classic uh, problem, I think, of video games, right? When you're, especially yeah. if you're in the design loop, trying to describe why something is important and how it should be done, and also maintain some sort of global view of what everyone else is doing and what their blockers are, is really hard if you feel pressure to be the the single source of articulating the creative vision, or if you feel like you need to manage multiple creative visions over the course of a project, right? And so the the producer comes in and has that that little bit more of a high highline view of everything, but also a little less of the pressure to be correct all the time, right. you know. And that <laughs> that's very very helpful because it takes away a lot of the internal sort of anxiety and stress around being a good communicator, and it gets replaced with just efficiency, which is such a benefit. But it's so hard to explain that to someone. Uh, in the moment, right? What what was it that drove you finally to bring a producer on board? Well, I mean, we had we had chosen to work with Pop Agenda in general. I think it was 2018. Uh, it was weird having met them and, and known them otherwise um, in the industry in general, and then having like one in person meeting and then never seeing them in person again uh, <laughs> was very weird. But um, I think it was just the, Jen. Uh, being like Genevieve St. Ange being like, uh, Hey, do you need any help? Like organizing these things or scheduling stuff or dealing with all this paperwork? Uh, and I think like commonly it's, uh, I don't know. I had the tendency to be like, Oh no, I'm fine. I have it. No problems. Extremely Midwestern, like <laughs> humble, like, <laughs> Uh, I don't need any help or maybe, maybe, maybe like a toxic male thing, but like, uh, I just eventually kind of caved and was like, yeah, I could really use some help with like these 30 things, um, <laughs> because I can no longer Track juggle them. them in my head. And I don't yeah. know if that's me getting older or more busy or both. Um, but, uh, it, it, it's been an incredible amount of help and, I don't know, I guess to actually answer what you what you asked, uh, I think the thing that changed the most is just having to communicate more deliberately uh, when you're not in the same space, being able to kind of passively absorb things that are going on. Yeah. It's actually, I mean, we, you know, Phenomena had been at, at uh, two to three days a week work from home for most people just because we have a lot of young families at the company. And, right. you know, we're 28 now, 29 um, and so we were already kind of trying to be very deliberate about communication, but I think the pandemic has really shown us that you have to create spaces to sort of get that serendipity if you can, you know, so mm. discord, discord rooms where people can be working together in a, a room that's just turned on sound only and chatting while they're typing or making jokes or whatever meme channels and things like this, where people can kind of communicate we have a kitchen chat in the morning where people go in and hang out and, while eating breakfast and talking, just like you would when you came in from your commute and got your coffee. Right. Um, but it is is—it is really, it's a little bit, It I guess it pings the game designer in me to think about all the things that seem so easy um, that are actually really deliberate acts of communication and creativity in a, in a shared space and to try to, to try to surface those and make them into something that is part of a virtual community you know we're onboarding two people this this year this year and then oh, early wow. next year and yeah it'll be so interesting right we've hired them and now we're going to be onboarding them and we'll never have seen them in person I'm like what a 
what an interesting time <laughs> to be a, yeah, to be a developer. I, I might need to talk to you about that because I imagine we'll end up doing a similar thing um, soon, and that sounds kind of scary. <laughs> well, you know, I guess one of the things that um, that I'm thinking about as I'm listening to you talk about the game is the the actual sort of humor in the initial concepts of, you know, capturing these cute things and then taking them apart and feeding them to grumpy people. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, like in a way, um, I guess it just, you know, it, it's interesting because I think we need, we need some kind of ways to reflect upon this time that aren't just like quite so earnest and quite so in your face. Like, mm-hmm. you know, there's only so much like, yeah, this pandemic that you can do uh, with one another. And I guess one of the things that I think people are excited about with Bug Snacks is the feeling that you get from watching the Bizarro <laughs> trailers, like <laughs> that it's just going to be this nonsensical, weird experience that you don't have to take too seriously. And I think that that's you know, there's something in that. Did you did you feel that as the game was coming together at the end, and you're you like you said, you know, you knew what it had to be? Um, were you able to kind of take some of your lived experience from the last year and kind of get it in there, or was it a reaction to that? Like, where does it fall on that spectrum of like you know being art about being you? I think I can only speak to this obviously as so much as as I relate to it. Um, since I didn't write the game directly, but uh, that was Kevin Zoon. But um, to me, the game is a lot about coping with various difficult things in your life, um, whether that be your identity, your work and life relationship, or um, relationships with others. Uh, and And within the game, it feels as if characters are coping with it in a potentially unhealthy way uh, and are exploring different solutions that they happen upon trying to find the right one for them. Um, Which I don't know. I think it's pretty much the same situation as Octodad in which I feel like we're trying to pull off a magic trick of getting people to play a silly, goofy thing that for the most part is silly and goofy. Um, But there's definitely a message and a theme and, um, something we try to get across for people who are interested in, in looking in, in um, kind of investigating those things a little bit further. So, and I think, I don't know if, if how much of it is pulled directly from this year. um, But I think a lot of it is definitely pulled from lived experience from various people on the team or people that we know um, and problems that are immediate to us or adjacent. Um, whether it's, it's climate change or uh, living in a community uh, and navigating that or addiction or I don't know. There's a, there's a lot of stuff there. And I think it also comes from, it stems from the media that all of us enjoyed a lot as kids and how that stuff, whether it be from Nickelodeon or Cartoon Network or uh, Jim Henson or, whoever it wasn't afraid to treat younger a younger audience like uh people yeah. rather than than children i guess yeah um i mean we're obviously still very cognizant of the fact that this game will be played by kids but at the same time we're not trying to baby them i guess um because a lot of the stuff that even i still love uh like i don't know adventure time or steven universe or over the garden wall things like that um yeah 
they're presented in a way that is just different than some some other media that is targeted towards children uh, that it feels respectful, I guess. Yeah, I was actually just uh, I was going through some old Disney films recently and I rewatched Sleeping Beauty and was just sort of remarking to myself as I was watching some of the animations and you can really see the difference between the sort of more standard classic animation stuff and then the more experimental animation that happens during the magic scenes, you know, and thinking Mm -hmm. about the time in which that film was made when probably some of the animators were experimenting with drugs and like there was a lot of conversation in the community around, you know, the ERA and women's rights. And so this idea of being betrothed to someone who you've never seen and, (laughs) and then, and then falling in love and then being hauled away to marry this person and then eventually discovering that they're actually your true love. Like there's kind of an interesting, there's a level of feminism in the film that you wouldn't normally see. um, You're just watching it from a, from a child's perspective, but it's definitely there. And and uh, even things like Time Bandits or, you know, we, my friend and I watched recently watched uh, Space 1999 and uh, Greatest American Hero and some of these like these different shows that were a huge influence on me as a child. And it's really interesting to see which ones hold up and which ones really don't. And I think that right. there is there was something about that, like, oh, I don't know, Pee Wee's Playhouse kind of era. And, and you know, when you had even just shows like Syphil and Ollie or Space Ghost, like, you know, there, there were some really great uh, things coming out of, out of children's media when, when I was in college and you were in high school, probably, you know, that were really, they were really fantastic. And they did, they did do a lot to confront what was, what was currently going on. And I think it's just going to be very interesting to see what, what we get in the next couple of years in terms of programming that addresses these issues of like, you know exactly what you're talking about: identity, isolation, trying to be in community in a, on a planet that seems to be hurtling towards this really, really grim outcome. You know, like yeah. it's just very, it's very interesting when you when you think about um, being this nine person team, like on this rock hurtling through space. You know, like do you guys <laughs> do you guys have a um, do you have a, a sense of mission around trying to communicate about these things? Is this something that's explicit in your culture as a team? Uh, I think. It's hard to say if I think so. I mean, within our mission is wanting to is, is wanting to create something for people to experience that kind of is joyful, uh, relatable, uh, can be enjoyed by anybody, which is difficult because I think that you know the saying goes: if you create something for everyone, you're not creating anything. For you know, for any, anyone, if that makes any sense, yes. like, you know, you, you're not, uh, if you try to be relatable to every single person, then, you know, you may not be as impactful on any one person. It might um, be oatmeal. Right. Uh, but it's, I don't know, it's part of our, our thing, which I think is, is also pulled from our, our influences. Um, cause I feel like Pixar movies are that way. Uh, like I mentioned, Nickelodeon shows are that way where there's something there for, for the kids to enjoy, but there's also something there for older kids or adults who could get out of it as well. Um, and on both sides of that, maybe some of it goes over the other's head um, or isn't as relatable. Uh, I don't know if there's an explicit, like we need to, to teach a lesson or we need to, 
get these certain things across, but it's definitely something where we're very willing to explore whatever it is that is going on with us or affecting us, um, or we think is affecting the world and project how we feel about that to, to other people. Um, yeah. You guys have a, a history of taking your time to make games, which would make you sort of a slow studio in the sense that yeah. you're not rushing to deadlines. You're not trying to be on a publisher schedule, right? You're really, for the most part, trying to to find the fun and the time that you allocate. And that is, you know, I, I had someone at one point say, that's a lifestyle company. <laughs> it's not a business. Um, yeah. Which I found kind of funny because like, well, if it's not a lifestyle company, then isn't that just like hell? <laughs> right, right. <laughs> if like, you why really would you want to work there? your life to work, then why are you working? But, um, but you know, being, being where you are now, um, I mean, I think one of the things that's interesting to think about is a little bit like you did start as a collective of people that were all volunteering effort towards this mm -hmm. single goal. And then when you became a company, like you're effectively still a co-op, right? I mean, it's sort of like you decide things as a group over time, as you were saying. Has that, yes. has that, so, so maybe talk a little bit about like, the before you were a company and the after you were a company and like, what were those things that you carried forward? Because like you said, you know, when we were talking about it a little bit before, maybe not everything you do when you start off as a game company is <laughs> very smart, especially if you, like you said, you don't have as many understandings of all the whammies that could be in the way. So like talk a little bit about how you, how you started and like what, yeah, what things you carried forward and what things you would definitely not carry forward <laughs> if you were to do it again. I mean, I think the, I mean, the obvious differences there are just that before we were a company, before we had made any money with Octodad, uh, people's livelihoods were not <laughs> at stake. Uh, other people had other jobs and, and maybe, you know, we were uh, optimistically looking forward to doing this full time, but the stakes were also much lower because if Octodad didn't make any money, we all still had our day jobs to go back to uh, if we needed to um, by the nature of living in the U S but like uh, being responsible for people uh, living in this world and being able to do so hopefully like comfortably and, and without or with minimal anxiety as much as we can afford to do so is important to us. And I think that drives quite a few of our decisions. Um, and I think I don't know, it's difficult to talk about and look back on what we've done versus what we're doing now, because it's kind of like if you, live with someone or I don't know, like noticing change is difficult when you're right next to the thing that is changing all the time because yeah. it's less perceptible. But um, I think it's just like we were talking before about being deliberate with communication. I think being deliberate with um, resolving you know, any arguments or, or fights or whatever like that has been something that we've had to work on a lot. 
um, given that we are a company that runs like a collective in terms of our uh, decision making, because it, you know, like they say, of, of too many sh- like chefs uh, in a kitchen or, or whatever, um, in which you know everyone trying to vie for a controller or something <laughs> results in nothing being made or, or whatever, or maybe um, the design of something not having like a clear vision because there are too many hands on it. Um, making that work for us has, has never been completely easy, but it has always felt worthwhile, I guess, because everybody has ownership over pretty much everything. Um, and like, while we have our own, you know, specialties, uh, there's no piece of the game that is completely off limits, um, to everyone else, even if it's just input. Um, but like I said, over time, we just had to get better at, you know, presenting that, that input so that it's not destructive and is hopefully as constructive as can be. Um, which has just taken a lot of work and like honest conversation between people of like, it's, it's easy to, um, I don't know. I feel like I'm rambling, but it's easy to get lost within the heat of various moments when you're upset or, or, you know, maybe you're hurt by something someone said or, um, or whatever. Uh, and to be able to step back and then come back to the conversation once everything is maybe cooled or people have a different perspective on, on what was said, um, takes a lot of practice and like patience um, and learned control over, over kind of, I don't know if it, maybe if it's control, but like. It's presence, right? I mean, you have to be yeah. present and like, I think that the point you made at the beginning of that statement is, is particularly prescient, which is that it's hard to be present when you're, when you're used to something, when you're in a pattern and, you know, yeah. you're doing your day or, you know, you've been working with this one person in a certain way for a very long time you you bring your perception of that person into the interaction. And unfortunately, human beings have a tendency to believe that everything around them is fixed and stopped and that they are the only dynamic element in the equation when in fact right. everything is dynamic all the time. And it's very it's very helpful to the to this sort of processing unit that we all possess to be able to sort of freeze everything else and then reason through our own needs and, wants um, as a single agent in a system which is mostly fixed um, because it allows us to feel like we have plans and that we're making (laughs) progress, right? When in fact, there's absolutely no way. I think the pandemic has actually brought that to a very fine point. You know, it's very... It's very easy to say, like, I will socially distance and not go to restaurants and dinners, and th- and therefore I will be able to have a Thanksgiving where people come to my house and then realize, actually, <laughs> that's it's not possible <laughs> to do that yeah. because there's really no way t- to manage uh, with 100% certainty your exposure, even even if you if you are very very careful. There's there's little ways in which it can be uncertain, and so that idea of being present is 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 a hard thing, right? Because it involves it involves getting out of your own automatic assumptions about everyone else and then well, I think, seeing them made concrete, you know? Yeah. I mean, I think for us, it was a lot about um, having started the company as just, you know, friends who were trying to do something cool, but then being within a business situation and then also being in a position to where we start hiring people that were not part of that initial group. You have to like change your whole behavior set um, in order to, hopefully make it as like 
comfortable and easy place to work as possible for anybody who didn't experience those like formative times, I guess, um, because it can be pretty intimidating to, to walk into a room with a group of like seven or eight people who have known each other for, you know, 10 years um, and be the new person there. Uh, and so there's just a lot of stuff that we had to be very, I don't know, just aware of like, oh, are we accidentally leaving this person out of this conversation by using this inside joke or whatever that like they have no idea about and would be like, you can't sit there and explain an entire history of, of six people's <laughs> relationship with one another just so that someone can get a joke or I, yeah. I don't know. There's just like stuff where you're just trying to be considerate of the position that the new person you've brought in uh, is, is in. And, and I don't know. It's complicated. It's uh, it, it is hard. Difficult. It's very complicated. <laughs> when I when I first left graduate school and went to work on The Sims, I remember my first day at work, I was sitting in my first meeting. And in the first 10 minutes of the meeting, they had used so many acronyms that I felt completely like I was drowning in my own yeah. mind. And I remember thinking like, oh my God, they're going to realize that I don't know what I'm doing. This is all like this is all games industry stuff. And I'm just a weird <laughs> computer science grad student who like has somehow fallen into this hole of acceptance, but pretty soon it's going to fall right through the earth and I'm going to be in hell. And like, oh my God, this is so awful. Right. And then literally someone in the meeting being like, actually, before we move on, like, let's actually explain what these terms are to this poor person. <laughs> I'm sure my face was like ashen, you know, I'm sure I look right, like, like- going to throw up. Yeah. And then slowly over time, learning to ask, like, what does fames mean? Or what is Edith? Or what is this? Or what is that? You know, and like, like, right. just, just being able to have that courage, you know, from the other side was, was so hard. And I think that's in an organization that is very used to onboarding new people, right? So like, when you're tiny, it's just a lot more, it's a lot more to, to, to sort of work through. Yeah, I think it was just like making a lot of efforts to maybe pull that person aside and say, you know, how did how did this, uh, how did your first day go or how did your first couple of weeks go? Are there any questions or anything that you're, you're confused about or maybe you're concerned about or trying to just be very um, approachable or as approachable as possible. And uh, are you pro process? Are you like, are, are you the kind of person who would like, uh, once you've done a thing a certain way and it works, you want to like say, okay, this is the process or are you, are you more of a like, everything is an individual case and we address it on an individual case. Some things I like to have process to and other things I don't. Um, like we have our, our, we have quarterly kind of reviews um, in which everybody on the team just kind of talks through what they did um, and what they're planning to do, how they felt like the quarter went for them, both work-wise and just in general. Um, because, I think it's important for everybody to kind of like, ideally you're always cognizant of the fact that, you know, this person over here might have something going on in their life that you have no idea about. And maybe you don't need to even know about, but you should be aware that like you could be, I don't know, hurting their feelings or bringing up bad memories or, or, or something like that. And I think the the kind of quarterly sessions we have are are helpful in just being aware of what's going on in each other's lives even yeah. if we're not hanging out all the time or especially now when we're not hanging out at all um, <laughs> uh, so that's been that's been really helpful and that's like a instated uh, process 
but then there's stuff where it's just like, oh, I can tell that this person has been kind of off or like they seem a little more quiet than usual or, or things like that and trying to be in tune with, with how everyone is existing, I guess, and check in with them when things feel different. Um, and, you know, hopefully a lot of times they're fine and maybe they're just tired or whatever, but uh, I, know, I try to that. make it, <laughs> yeah, it doesn't hurt to ask. And I try to make sure that everybody knows that I'm always around um, for that stuff, which, yeah, just learning to be somewhat in charge, even though I'm not in, like, it's not that hierarchical, I guess, is uh, interesting. Um, and I don't know if it would, how well it would work if we got much bigger, but for now it seems to fit. You know, if it's, if it's, if my experience is any indication, the, a flexible model of leadership where people step into positions, um, you know, of direction or authority or sort of organization and process when they are needed is it's a very flexible, um, way to organize a team as long as trust is high. And mm. so, you know, if you think about it, like Navy SEALs or the French Legionnaires, you know, you know, use the same kind of model in the sense that like, if somebody steps forward and says, I'm taking the lead, everyone else on the team says, okay, you're the lead until they're not. Um, and that it's, it's known that a person doesn't step up and take the lead unless they feel that they're in their, in their uncertainty, that they understand what needs to be done in that moment and that they won't hold on to it any longer than is necessary. And I think that you can actually grow teams um, of, you know, seven to 12 people that are flexible in that way and have multiple teams like that in a studio. Um, but there does become a point where you can't, you can't actually, like those teams don't necessarily know as much about what's going on in other teams. Right. That is, that is something that does happen. And that's why you need that the culture of sharing, you know, funny memes and thinking about, you know, being a parent, like we have a parent channel on the Slack so that people can just post about how awesome it is to be a parent, which is really mostly just complaining about all the strange things <laughs> their kids do, you know, right. in a loving and caring way. <laughs> sure, sure. But you need people to relate to and, yeah. and kind of share. Yeah. Yeah. And it, it, it is, especially the more diverse your organization gets and the more ages and, you know, countries and types of folks that you have across the spectrum of humanity and your team, right? It's those touch points and values that really do, do hold a team together. Um, do you have um, like a special place where you share like funny jokes, media, and like things that are inspiring you in the moment? Because I feel like as a team, you really do have this, this <laughs> really wonderful sense of of the absurd, you know, the theater of the absurd that is our lives. And like, it's just sure. really interesting. <laughs> like, you know, do you find yourselves like having watch parties and like playing, playing things together right now? I mean, Over the Garden Wall is a perfect example. We had a watch party for that on Halloween as a studio just because we love it. Um, and it's got such big feels, you know, but it was so nice to just sort of be able to laugh and talk through it with everybody. Like, do you, do you find that that's, that's helpful in these times? I think so. Yeah. I mean, the, I think we've had people play, um, various things through tabletop simulator and, uh, phasmophobia is that the name of that game where you're like ghost hunting together, um, things like that. Um, but then of course we do have our, our like discord server, uh, for the team where we have various channels of just like, here's the random place where it's just like, if you find anything that you think is inter interesting and you want to post it somewhere to talk about it, uh, that is the place. Uh, 
but and that ranges anywhere from like here's a good new sandwich from this local place you can order <laughs> to uh i recently posted a thing about uh the like fake cult leader from the movie mandy putting out a real album oh, wow um, and stuff like that or there's like oh here's a cool animation or, or things like that but there's definitely an attempt to have a shared uh culture in just the things that we enjoy or watch or play um or read or, or whatever um and i think that was actually an interesting thing starting to bring people on who are younger than us yeah uh, of we like initially had a very shared like Nickelodeon, you know, nineties kids, I don't know, feel to, to everything that we thought was funny or enjoyed. Yeah. Um, and then just bringing people on and them just being like, what, is, what is that? <laughs> uh, we're just like, Oh no, we're old. Uh, it has been interesting, but fun because then, you know, you get to find out a bunch of stuff that you maybe didn't, hadn't seen or known about. Yeah, I actually really enjoy interacting with younger kids as as part of my role at UC Santa Cruz and being on the, the Discord there watching them ch- share information. And I feel <laughs> like I have like a cheat mode where I can just like go in and look at the, I don't know, the dank memes chat on, on right. Discord. And then let's suddenly it's like, it's just funny to me. I feel like I'm getting schooled all the time by people much younger than me, 20, 25 <laughs> years younger than me. Like I'll say something about my childhood and someone will be like, I was two then. And I'm like, oh my God. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> now, like, exactly. I was in high school and you were two. That's so crazy. But um, but it is really nice in, in a way also that it's I don't know. I mean, there's there's no way to silver lining a pandemic, but like there is something nice about being able to all share the same kind of platforms and and talk across them in some ways. You know, like my mom is on Zoom now, which never would have happened in a million years before. (laughs) And I can send my dad TikTok links, you know, in his phone now. And (laughs) it, it does it does feel like there is something that's happening where we're learning from younger people at an accelerated rate. Um, also, they don't have this sort of sense of immediate loss of plans, it seems like, compared to everyone else. You know, like my niece, right. like 17, is like, well, I guess I might go to college, you know. <laughs> sure. <laughs> well, <laughs> yeah, I don't yeah. know what's even going to be happening, you know. And like, yeah, school's cool. I don't really like going to school in the first place. So like doing school from home is pretty awesome for me. I get to exercise more and spend more time with my friends and I'm still learning and it's cool for me. Like I think a lot of her perspective is really refreshing, you know, whereas maybe, you know, some of us older folks are a little bit more like, Oh, can't, can't fly here or can't, you know, see this right. person or whatever. Right. Because our lives are more established. Well, there's a, yeah, there's a definitely a perspective there of if you have not experienced those things as much before, then you're not maybe as losing as much um, relative to, to what you've experienced uh, because I think if you, you know, if, if you haven't traveled a lot or if you haven't gone to college before, then you don't even really know what you're missing. Um, or maybe like what, you know, we perceive as like, oh man, how could you not have done this or gone here? Uh, maybe it's not actually that, that important and just feels important because we've lived it. Um, yeah, it's so hard to say, right? Like, I mean, I think that video games are doing so much for people in this time, you know, giving people random ways to experience their agency and learn new worlds and figure out new systems. And yeah. it's why a game like Bugsnax is so exciting because you can like, you know, 
you can immerse yourself in this really unfamiliar space and like and be in it in a way that is it's completely transporting, which is really great, you know. But at the same time, yeah, I mean, who knows? Are you seeing like interesting things from your fans as it as it goes out there and gets gets absorbed? Like, are you engaging with your community more now? Do you think? Yeah, it's a lot of fun. I mean, despite <laughs> despite my monotone voice, I, I swear, like I'm having a great time uh, reading um, everybody's reactions. Uh, people are making their own grump sonas and uh, making their own bug snacks, both out of food that they have at home or just like drawing them, <laughs> um, things like that. There's been some fan fiction starting up, all sorts of weird stuff. Uh, and cool stuff. Uh, those two things are kind of synonymous with us, I think. But like, um, it's been really interesting to see how people have grabbed hold of different things within the game, and like what they have, what they've clung to, and what they've liked the most out of what is there. Because you always have your own perception of like, well, this is the point of the game, and this is what you know I like about it. Uh, and then when you release it. Um, maybe some people align with that, but not everybody is going to, a lot of people will find their own pieces of it that they like or dislike. And it's, it's always interesting to see why. Um, but I don't know. I feel like we've all, we've overall gotten a more positive reaction to this than even Octodad, which is weird because it felt like, well, we've made our, our meme game and <laughs> now, <laughs> like, how are we supposed to top that? Like this thing that, that went viral um, in a way, at least for the time. And it was very uh, intimidating to go and make this because uh, we were like, well, we know we're pretty sure we can make like a better game if that is even a thing, just like a more cohesive game, I guess, uh, um, a game that can be enjoyed by even more people. But I don't know if we can make something that, you know, would be more popular or that more people would latch onto than Octodad. So that was just like a thing that sat in the back of our minds, I think, during all of development. Yeah, it's like the second album thing. Yeah, it's, it's just always tough effort. for any indie that has a big breakout hit. You always you always worry like, oh no, no. Now you've got to <laughs> confront the next one. And the next one is always it's like a lot, right? Yeah, it's like a good problem to have, but but uh was just I don't know, just something that like weighed on me at least. Uh, the whole time. <laughs> so, I mean, I think it's really common for this to happen. And, you know, there, there's the world is full of people that do one or two things and then just like, you know, the stress of having to keep topping it is too much for me. I think I'm done now and I'm going to go become a, I don't know, I'm going to run a surf shop in Costa Rica <laughs> or like, you know, be, become an underwater basket weaver or something like that. I mean, now that you're, now that you're through it, do you feel like you would want to do it again? Are you are you up for another six year rodeo with something even weirder? Do you think it's weird because Octodad was like two and a half, maybe three years if you include the like original student game, and after that, after it did well, we were like, oh great, now we can take our time. But now that we've taken our time and it's been six years, I'm like, <laughs> mm, maybe maybe we do a little bit of a shorter thing next time, a shorter game two two and a half years seems like reasonable uh and we just don't we just aren't as ambitious but i don't see that happening uh <laughs> to be honest like yeah. it's unlikely that we will backpedal maybe we'll make something smaller but more 
polished and focused or something like that. I'm not sure yet. Um, I do know that we are all going to take a break for a while besides just like, these are things we have to do to keep business running. Um, and then just kind of see what comes from that. Cause I mean, we have plenty of, it's weird having multiple kind of creative pools to draw from now. Um, yeah. cause we have our two existing, uh, IP, I guess. And then like, so we could make something for either of those, or we could just do something entirely new again, which is also alluring. Um, and I don't know quite how it's going to shake out yet. Cause we have still too many ideas for all three of those scenarios. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's really cool that you've been able to sort of take the momentum of a student game and turn it into a studio and then take that studio and turn it into a deliberative practice where, you know, you're, you're, you're building things based on these kind of higher order feelings or goals around communication and creativity with a, with a small tight group of people. And it'll just be really interesting to see where you go next. I guess one of the things I always think about when I'm when I'm doing these interviews is sort of like if you could go back in time, you know, and give yourself a piece of advice, you know, like especially thinking about younger listeners who are, you know, would would see Young Horses as a as a radically amazing success. Like, what would be a piece of advice you would have for those out there that are just getting started? Like now that you can look back, you know, if you could take a moment and be present, what would you what would you say to yourself back then, or what's a piece of advice that you would have wanted to have heard from someone like yourself? I think an overarching, I don't know if it's a methodology or a, like a way to approach, uh, I feel like it's a way to approach almost anything and is just that when you're observing someone else's lived experience, whether that's a person who was successful by uh, their own metrics and others or someone who maybe a project for them, they felt it, it failed, uh, you can't take those results, um, or at least I think it's unwise to take those results and use them as an example of like, you can't use them as a roadmap, just the examples themselves or the, the results themselves. You have to kind of investigate and observe the entire system that is their life almost. <laughs> um, like who is this person kind of maybe where did they come from? How did they form this business or join this studio? Uh, where did this game or project come from? Uh, what were the circumstances in which it was made in general and released? What were the, <laughs> what was the world like at the time that it released and was made and the opportunities that existed then that maybe do not exist now? Um, you kind of have to take a, I don't know if it's like a holistic approach, but just analyzing every part of, of the project and the team that made it, um, I think is essential if you're going to use anything as an example for, or a, a like bl blueprint for what you would like to do. Yeah. Um, because I've seen, even since we released Octodad, I've seen teams go directly from here's our senior project to let's start a company without that project maybe having the legs that I would feel would be necessary for me to take that kind of leap. Um, because I don't know with Octodad, I feel like a lot of people or some people maybe don't realize that uh, 
there was a lot in place before we decided to start a company. Um, and even then it was still, you know, a gamble to some extent. Um, but we do, we do a lot more risk mitigation and a lot more planning than I feel like it looks like, uh, on the outside. Um, and so I think just for anyone who is trying to do this, they should, you know, ask me or ask anybody else who has done it before, uh, things to look out for things to consider, and then maybe even don't completely trust what I'm saying because <laughs> like, I, have, I, I have my own biases and experiences that are not going to match up with theirs. Um, and my own, you know, privileges or whatever that may have led me to being able to do what I do yeah. that they may not have. Um, and I think it's just very complicated and it's not as simple as like, well, we made a game and now we're going to do a Kickstarter. And it's like, well, Kickstarter is not the greatest <laughs> uh, place for that anymore necessarily. And, you know, the amount of money you're going to raise is not enough to pay any human uh, uh, like decent wage to live um, generally, uh, even if you've seen success from other studios. So maybe that's not the best route to take. So maybe try this other thing or... I don't know. And it's, it's take that per person, per project, uh, and then apply it to the fact that you then have to get an entire team to work together well. And it's just like, I don't know, it's a, it's a wild set of circumstances <laughs> in context that I still don't understand how we've managed to, to do um, to some extent. And so it's scary to me when someone younger than us approaches us and asks us about that process and about like what they want to do. Um, and I try, I don't know, I try to be optimistic for them, but just lay out the, here's the thousand places that this could go wrong. Um, and it, I don't know, it's been tough over time, I feel like, because some people you give advice or you let in on kind of everything that's gone on with your own projects and maybe they follow that advice and maybe they don't. Uh, yeah, it's impossible, actually. <laughs> right. I can't imagine like... <laughs> you being a teacher, like that's got to be a thing all the time, right? Oh, it's, uh, I mean, the thing that I do is exactly what you do. I say that it's, it's the only thing you can control really is yourself and your mm -hmm. approach to the conversations and the conflicts that you have. And, you know, creative collaboration under uncertainty is the definition of human. It is why we are how we are and what we are. We collaborate and we design things in order to change the state of the world from what it is to something more aligned with what we perceive to be better or our values. Um, and that in and of itself is a really problematic truth of humans because we have, as we talked about at the beginning, we have the ability to believe that we are the center of the universe when in fact we are a very, very small part of it. And individually, yeah. but also collectively, like humanity is just such a tiny speck of dust compared to even just you know, beetles. <laughs> so it's right. like, you know, I mean, I think that what I try to tell them, and I think what I'm hearing you say as well, is that you have to do your best within your constraints and you have to know mm -hmm. what those constraints are to the best of your ability. There's no way to know all of them. And so that's what makes creativity difficult and scary, but it's also what makes it exciting. You know, it's, it's what brings it, what it's what brings the flavor to a day when you, when you're trying to tackle a problem and then you collaborate with a few other people and you get that sorted, whether it's doing a localization pipeline or coming up with a, you know, a new system for animation or just that one line in that joke that just made everybody laugh at the playtest. Like those moments are really great. And, 
you know, getting between them is, is navigating, you know, the uncertainty of living. But yeah, you just try to tell them, try to be a good person and acknowledge <laughs> that you don't know what you don't know and do yeah. it as soon as you can <laughs> so that you don't, you don't accidentally step in it. Um, cause right. there's plenty of other traps out there for you. So don't make your own, you know, don't start fires. Don't talk about each other behind each other's backs and try to be kind to one another. And I think actually the, probably the number one thing that has emerged over the years with teaching and it's been about seven years now, um, is that the teams in the senior sequence that we have, they do best when they have a team culture that they advertise at the very beginning, when they have in their very first pitch slides, this is the kind of team we are. Like we're a works all night, late night jamming on graphics team and our game is going to look really sick, you know, and that's yeah. the culture that we have. And if you want to be that, like, you know, code warrior late at night, staying up, you know, just trying to get it to look perfect, then you should be on our team. Or, hey, you know, we're just we're just a bunch of cabin cozy kids, like making this game <laughs> about frogs. And like, that's what we're doing. <laughs> if yeah. you want to, if you want to make a cool rainbow game with us and like have some ice cream and talk, like that's what we're going to be doing. <laughs> and like, it really does make a huge difference if they start from the beginning, knowing the kind of people they want to be, then it, it really does reduce a lot of the other issues that can come from just trying to get things done under uncertainty. I might pass that along because that's very good <laughs> uh, because that is, yeah. I mean, you know, with at young horses, it's like we make weird things that we are interested in and want to make while also only working like 30, 35 hours a week, ideally. And, you know, like it's very chill and it's, you know, take the time off when you need to and that kind of thing. And we only want to work with people who also want that. Yeah. I think that the, knowing yourself is hard in any world, but especially in this world where <laughs> where the opportunities to see yourself mirrored and others are getting so lean. And like, it's very important to, to make it a, a deliberate practice. You know, I mean, even the Buddha would say the same thing, right? There is no such thing as a one way. There's just each individual person's way. And that is something that only the individual person can know. It's why there's no way to say yes or no to any question that you ask a Buddhist, uh, because there is no real answer. There is no real fixed you or me or, or any of this. And I guess you know, with that, I will just say that it was really great to catch up with you. I'm so I'm so proud of you guys. Like I remember when you were just starting out and having conversations with you and John about like how to organize the team and what what young horses would become. And it's just so great to see you launching a title on the PlayStation and like coming out with this great vibe during this time when everybody needs a little bit of laughter and contemplation in their lives. So thank you for doing that, Phil. Thank you. I appreciate it. It's really nice to talk to you and just hear, hear your voice. <laughs> yeah. You know. I look forward to uh, playing your game when my PlayStation finally arrives, if it ever does. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I wish we had more control over that. <laughs> it's all right. It just bears saying that everybody's dying for one. So uh, oh, yeah. I hope that this, this coming year is really great for you. Have a fantastic holiday. And thank you so much for taking the time to speak with us today. Thank you. Thank you for joining us for the Game Maker's Notebook. For more information on the Academy of Interactive Arts and Sciences, our podcasts, and our other initiatives, please visit www.interactive.org.